Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Director's Guild of America. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode, in honor of the 72nd Annual DGA Awards, we're bringing back our annual series of episodes devoted to our popular Meet the Nominees Theatrical Feature Film Symposium. Now in its 29th year, the event is a roundtable discussion with the directors nominated for the Guild's Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Theatrical Feature Film. This year's nominees include Bong Joon-ho, the director of Parasite, Sam Mendes, the director of 1917, Martin Scorsese, the director of The Irishman, Quentin Tarantino, the director of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Taika Waititi, the director of Jojo Rabbit. These talented directors were gathered on January 25th at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, with director Bong Joon-ho accompanied by his translator Sharon Choi, to discuss the craft of directing and the making of their films with moderator Jeremy Kagan. Martin Scorsese was unable to attend the last portion of the event, but to hear him engage in conversation about his film The Irishman, please listen to parts one and two of this special, or go to his Q&A with director Spike Lee, recorded in New York. So please enjoy part three of our Meet the Nominees special and listen to the nominees discuss working with actors and what they learned on this movie. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Let me pick up on there with this idea. I'd like to hear all of you talk about this issue of if you had to redirect your actors, what you said and how you got that to happen, if it happened. And Bong, when I start with you. So I also try not to go to the actors after every take and tell them what to do and adjust performances. They're all great actors already, and I have a lot of trust in them. So Taika and Quentin, you guys have acted before, so you guys must know. Sometimes when you hear the director's adjustments and their directions, um, it feels like they're interfering with your process. Um, So I always have this fear that my directions and requests uh, may not help them, but actually just interfere interfere with them. So what I try to do is just repeat uh, takes and the actors will naturally change the nuance of their performances in those multiple takes and I take all of that to the editing room and experiment with it. With Parasite, because you had so many characters, especially with the family scenes, they were all in one shot together. And oftentimes when you look at the take with the father, his best take would be the second one. With the mother, it would be the first. And the son, it would be the fourth. So in the editing room, what I did was I cut them all out so that the performances would only be their best takes and stitched them together in one frame with visual effects. And that wasn't that difficult to do. There were a lot of that in this movie. So it's impossible to tell when you're watching the film, but there are several shots where it's actually two, three takes in one frame that were stitched together later on. (laughs) That's a new way of directing actors for some of us. (laughs) um, uh, um, The only brand new thing I've heard here. If you had rehearsal time, if you had rehearsal time, how did you use it? It's very hard to translate. <laughs> Sorry. So, all the actors and I don't really like to rehearse. So our process was just to move as fast as possible. We would do the, the simple physical rehearsals of ca- um, coordinating camera movements and the blocking. 
but we would pretty much just shoot right away. Um, oftentimes it would feel like a rehearsal with the camera rolling. Um, and oftentimes when, you know, when we do shoot these rehearsal-like takes, the gears won't fit and something will feel awkward, but sometimes that would actually feel more realistic. So with the clip of Parasite you guys saw um, earlier on, the face that Song Kang-ho makes as he's pulling the tissue with the red hot sauce on it, um, he and I have worked together for 20 years now, so usually our interpretations pretty much coincide. But with this one, he had a, a different interpretation. Until the fourth take, he put on a pretty comedic face. So with that, I had to ask him, I had to tell him that you don't have to be funny. Um, I just want to want you to make this face as if you're saying to the mother, I am so sorry that this is happening. This is not what I hoped for. And that's the nuance that I asked him to show with that expression. That was the fifth take, and that's what we use in the, in the film. When, when these characters are lying, which they do, the, the, for us or for the other characters who they're lying to, to believe what they're saying, how did you all arrive at a style of performance so, so that we didn't just think the other characters were being ignorant? Because the characters don't believe that they're lying themselves. <laughs> so there's actually a line where the Kim mother points out the daughter and talks about how she would have become a great con artist, which means, but they're actually pulling a con job at that moment, but they're not even aware that they're doing it. They have no sense of guilt, and they don't really think that they're doing something bad here. And also when the son you know, pulls up the fake diploma and says, this is not fraud, I'm really going to that university next year, Their char that character actually believes that. And that's what I requested for the actor, <laughs> that this, he will actually go to this university the year after. In the scene that we saw where the son is directing the father, <laughs> does he direct that way sometimes? <laughs> Sometimes it's embarrassing because I'm looking at myself. <laughs> <laughs> Will you actually say the lines for your actor every now and then? <laughs> so I'm not as intense as that son was. I tend to be more, uh, say it in a more roundabout way. I usually always start with, that was great, that was the best take, but let's just try something a little different. That's my approach. <laughs> All right, one more question for you in this, this process. Sex scenes like violence scenes are oftentimes a challenge for any director and actors. How did you handle that sex scene? So Parasite, you know, they're having sex on the sofa, but it's a very everyday mundane moment between this married couple. And also in that situation, rather than the sex itself, it was more important that we had these people under the coffee table hiding there. True, but the actors still had to do what they did. How did, they, how did the director get them to be there? So, I mean, there's that strange line of clockwise in that scene, if you guys remember. Uh, so that line was actually not in the script. I added it in my storyboarding process. And thankfully, all the actors loved it. They were actually more enthusiastic about it than I was. So I was very grateful because I didn't want to push anything that they were um, hesitant about. Uh, but they were so aggressive with just making sure to get that scene right. Uh, thank you, thank you. Uh, Quentin, you have some amazing performances. I mean, I must say the scene in the trailer, I think, is just 
I, I just think it's total, total magic. magic. Oh, well, um, and, the, and your choice, by the way, and what I'm fascinated with, it's the jump cuts that yeah. are there, whether that was thought about beforehand or afterhand. But I am really interested in your issue of redirecting performances, if and when and how. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting because I, I heard this question and I was like, um, look, I've just been lucky the last, uh, for a while now, I've, I've been working with, I think, some of the best actors in the world. All right, you know, so uh, um, if I wanted to be more comedic or more stronger or quieter or anything like that, I just, I would just tell them. I don't have to, I just tell them. I would just like, you know, I, I would just tell them. Um, but I'm interested in that. That, that. Those words that you just used mm -hmm. are kind of result words, but do you feel that that's enough because they're that talented that they don't have to be given another kind of, like if you say, I want this more comedic, that's enough? Well, like, like I hear what, I know what you want me to say, but it's just so specific to every particular moment. No, I love right? it. I love no, it. No, 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 no. I mean, you want me to get in more detail, but but in the abstract, not talking about this Got scene it. versus another scene, not talking about that actor versus another actor, it's it's hard to web span about it. I hear you. Um, you know, so it's like, uh, uh, look, I think it's part of a director's job to be a little metaphoric <laughs> as you talk about things. Look, you can also say, I want it quicker, I want it, I, 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 uh, make it more of a joke, or you're not selling my joke. You can definitely say, say things like that. It's always more fun, I think, for both the actor and for the director to be a little metaphoric, so you're not on the money about it. But I think it's really only when you're dealing, when you're stuck working with a bad actor or sometimes an amateur that you have to resort to kind of trickery or you play a little game to try to get your, uh, uh, get your response. But like, you know, with a professional actor, you just tell them. In terms of that particular scene, let's deal with it for a second. Well, okay, well, in, in that scene, well, that was actually, that was kind of an interesting thing because it was, uh, um, that kind of developed uh, where um, initially it wasn't going to be a situation where Leo was going to screw up the scene or he was going to mess up the dialogue, but Leo really wanted to do that. And uh, so then I wrote a version where that happens, and then he does it. And then once he did it, once we had that big take where he like gets out of the chair and, woo, you're an outlaw, Rick, you know? Uh, okay, well, I, that's going to be in the fucking movie. All right, so... Uh, um, <laughs> So now, okay, so now, now that's what we're doing. And I knew that we had to have a, a, um, a corresponding sequence in the trailer. And so I went to Leo and I go, well, look, here's the deal. Here's what I want. Here's what I think we need to do. We need to have you go into the trailer and have a freak out. And I don't want to write it. I think, I think it has to be improvised. I think I'll give you a whole bunch of subjects for you to be freaking out about. Um, but we'll, we'll come up with this, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll take our little trailer set and then I'll, uh, uh, I'll put a camera, I'll never change the angle, I'll just do it with jump cuts. Just think about uh, Travis Bickle's uh, sequence in his apartment for a taxi driver. So you won't have to worry about matching anything. You just go off and have, uh, we're, we'll do three tirades and we'll just run the camera until the, in, until the footage runs out, until the mag runs out. And, uh, and so I gave him subjects to focus on, that he could focus on. And it was just, let it rip. All right, and then after a certain point, if, if, if he was going too much on a subject, I'd throw another subject out at, at, at him. And he'd go off on that. And we just ran it until uh, uh, the camera rolled out. So it's like, you know, 
you know, so maybe he's talking about his drinking, maybe he's making fun of himself for his stammer, uh, you know, and I think, yeah, and he's getting mad, you know, then I like throw, okay, uh, James Stacy. Yeah, and that fucking James <laughs> Stacy, man. He couldn't be a wrangler on one of my, on my, on my show. He would, you know, he would be, uh, outlaw number four on my show. And he's just sitting there. He thinks he's so fucking smart. And da, 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 and, you know, okay, and now the little, and that little girl. She's such a little, she, she thinks she's so smart. All right, just whether she's so smug. I was, she's gonna be out of work in three years. I'm never we're gonna work again, <laughs> and then I was just, you know, and and, and then, uh, um, but then that actually started becoming fun. He would literally just uh, turn on a dime, not knowing that it never had to be all together; that it would just be the best bits put together. You know, she, that little actress, said that has, has an amazing line about acting that you have, which is what acting is avoiding impediments. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where did that one come from? If you were no, that's what, it's Damn. the absolute truth. Actually, there was this really funny moment we had. Uh, one of my favorite days on the whole production, and even before the production, but the, this whole experience was our script reading. And we had a pretty all-star script, script reading, all right? And I always really liked the script reading anyway. That's almost like, it's like the first cut of the movie as far as <laughs> I'm concerned. And if you don't show up at the script reading, you might not have a part, all right, the next day. All right, yeah, yeah, you, everyone has excuses, boy, they can't be there, and I have recast. Right. Uh, usually not because, uh, uh, oh, I'm just going to teach them a lesson, because, okay, uh, so Sam, uh, 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 you play so-and-so's role. Well, I like the way Sam did it. Fire that guy, and now Sam's playing two roles. I, I've done that four times. So... You know, come to my script reading. It's a good day. You're going to want to be there. Uh, uh, but we had a, uh, but we, we, we had an intermission, and my things are so long. We had an intermission, and, uh, and literally, I, Luke Perry and Timothy Oliphant uh, uh, were going around, and they're like laughing about the little girl's like acting speech. And, and, then, and then, like, Timothy goes, and you know what? She's right about everything she says. <laughs> we become professionals and like, okay, what, this and that. But I mean, she's 100% right about everything. And none of us here follow the, uh, none, none of us at that table follow all of that information. <laughs> <laughs> Did, were there any times where you, where you felt you needed to rework a performance? Are you there for any of them? Um... There was one actor, I won't say who, who, who the actor is, but there was one actor, they were a little over, I was, I was surprised. They, were, um, they weren't adding enough to it, mm -hmm. and I was surprised, and as I went in and talked to them about it, that they needed to bring more out of it. And, but, and look, so that actually is a situation where, I'm, where we're, uh, it is like what you're talking about, and... Um, and that was difficult because you're working with them, but you don't want to rob their confidence. But they're, they're just not doing it, all right? And, I, and that was actually a case where I had to say, you're not doing it. You're really not doing it. And uh, I, I think you need to be over here. I don't know why I'm watching you. I don't know why I'm listening to you. I don't know why, why the other characters are listening to you. You have to give me a reason to listen to you. 
All right, you're, uh, and there was even a situation, you're telling a story. I can't even follow the story you're telling. W what is the point of you telling this story? It's just, a, it's a word salad. It doesn't mean anything. Tell <laughs> me the story in a way that's in, that, that I'm, that one, I can follow it, that it's not just a bunch of blah, 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 all right, but that I care about the end of the story. Got it. Sam Wanamaker, the character of a director. It's interesting yeah. that, that, that in some of these movies you got somebody directing somebody else. So you got Hitler directing somebody else too. But the point is, when you were when you were creating this television director, mm -hmm. what were some of the processes for you in talking to that actor about what he was going to do? Oh God! Well, uh, uh, Nicholas Hammond is so uh, uh, amazing. He um, um, well, one. Uh, uh, Sam Wanamaker is a real guy, all right, and uh, he's a real actor, and he was a real director, and he did television, and he did movies, and he's like famous for uh, uh, being one of the real major movers of the Old Vic in uh, London, um, and so the but as an actor, I always found Sam Wanamaker kind of hammy, a hammy actor, and uh, and so. When me and Nicholas were talking about it, I go, look, I am positive as hammy an actor as Sam Wanamaker was, I'm positive he was twice as hammy a director. <laughs> you know? So you cannot play this character too big, uh, you know? Uh, uh, and as opposed to, like, say, uh, 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 Peter O'Toole in uh, the, the Stuntman, which was a little bit of a jumping off point, okay? I don't, I don't want you to quite, I don't want there to be the, the genius lock that, that there is a, a Peter O'Toole in there. It's just, you're just hammy, because that's how you think directing is supposed to be. And so anytime you talk, okay, now between you two guys, all right, you know, then you, tell a 20-minute story about what they've done and what they need to do next. And, uh, um, and I couldn't believe it that we did a, 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 we cut it out of the film. But he's just one, uh, Nicholas Hamill is one of the best uh, um, improv actors I've ever seen. He comes swooping in on a crane, all right, and to cut on the Lancer take, you know, and he's like, okay, cut, cut, cut. Marabella, you are my muse. <laughs> Haley Mills, eat your heart out. That was perfect. Okay, now, Sam, Wayne, here's the thing with you. You gotta understand, you're two cowboys. You have never met each other before. You don't like, and then when you say, look, top hat, you can't do this, and you know what he's calling you. All right, same thing. Right. You know, and it's gonna be, and it's gonna be a fight. It's gonna be death right here, blood in the street, until little Marabella shows up and stops the two of you. <laughs> And then even talking well, like another scene where he's directing uh, 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 Rick. He goes, you're a Hamlet. Goes, and this chair that you're sitting in, it's the throne of Denmark. <laughs> and you're a Hamlet. And you're both mad, driven crazy. Hamlet because of the death of his mother by his, uh, uh, his uncle. Caleb, because of syphilis. <laughs> you, know, you know, here's, and then, little Marabella is your pint-sized Ophelia. <laughs> you know what, what I'm wondering is, are you ever this way on set yourself? <laughs> okay, here's the thing. <laughs> After 
Nick would do that after Nick would play Sam. You had to direct like that. It was like the funniest thing to just give complete license to the your inner British hack. Right? <laughs> just have him come out. And then just every direction was so flowery. Kate, walk with me, talk with me. <laughs> great, great, great. <laughs> yes, it's true, some directors are actors. <laughs> and speaking of some directors as actors, Tycho, that's you for, um, uh, I'm going to shift the in terms of performance, if there were issues that, that you did have where you needed to redirect a performance, but I'm going to ask one very specific scene. When the boy discovers the mother um, hanging, um, it's an incredibly powerful scene. Um, it's, it's Spoiler. Kind of beautifully staged. <laughs> or, it's true, you fell asleep doing it. Oh, shit. I, I have no reason to say it. That's the answer to heroes. <laughs> Can you talk? I, I don't know whether you did have to redirect some of your actors during this process and if that language was there and what you did, or, and specifically in that particular scene, how you created it. Well, that scene was always uh, meant to, to be like that. The reveal, reveal was always, uh, was always going to be just the feet, and that's where we sort of seated the, the shoes in earlier. Uh, and with Roman, he knew that that was coming up, and, you know, and, and uh, so he was, I guess, preparing for it over, over the couple of weeks before. And he uh, became pretty apparent that he was able to to, to uh, get quite emotional, and he's I mean, he's very sensitive. So I mean, it's always doing stuff like that, especially with a kid. You know, it was always a bit sort of like, I don't know if he's not going to. Do anything if he's just like he's not going to take it seriously. Well, yeah, how am I going to? You know, I just didn't want to pretend it's your mother. You know, anything like it's yeah. To try to also try and manipulate people that way feels false as well. So, uh, but I was just very lucky in that he yeah he there was the, we didn't have to revisit it and he he did it. And uh, in terms of uh, adjusting actors. I don't. I try not to go in and talk to them very much in between. You know, like if I do another take, I will just like just leave them to it. And, and unless there's something really wrong, I'll go in. But uh, if I want something changed, I'll try and uh, I'll go up and like talk to the cameraman. Well, you fucked that up. Oh, sorry, we'll do it again. And then like go and, like just hope for a few takes that they're going to do something different. And then eventually, you know, I was like. Oh. I'm going to talk to an actor. And I go up and I go and I'm like, uh, and then what I usually do, I go, you know, I just, you just want to, right, you've got to, just, just, you know what I mean. And then they, I mean, and also, it's, I'm a notorious mumbler. So people, it's like now, everyone knows how like how bad I am. It's like I'm obviously love talking. I just, I know it's great. Uh, so Jimmy, but I saw that. This is what happened, and then I thought this because what he's doing over there. So I thought, so, but you know, yeah, you got it, you got it, you got it. Let's do it. Good, we got it. And then they'll just be bamboozled and like, what the fuck I was talking about. And then eventually, I'll just then I'll try everything. Everything like just fast as possible, fast as possible. Just, just as an option. <laughs> I don't like getting into the into the big long discussions about 
characters and stuff. I feel like that's their job beforehand. My my main thing, before I start work with anyone, I'll say, just like, I don't want to see 10 takes of the same thing. I'd like something, if you're going to ask for 10 takes, do something different. Also, don't ask me to, (coughs) don't ask me for an impro take. Um, Unless you you really (laughs) think you're good at it. Because I don't, still think actors often, uh, oh, we do an impro take. Which is just ring alarm bells for me because usually, I mean, yeah. I only do improv if it's actually going to help the scene or like move it on somewhere if there's a problem or something. But or if you just want some more jokes now that's something that they've come up with. Usually, actors will sit, you'll say, "Okay, improv take action," and they'll just say the first thing that comes into their head. Circle tables are cool. <laughs> Doesn't help. Not funny. Pointless waste of time. So, <laughs> other people are good at it. Some people not good at it. Uh, but it's just one of those things where I think people feel like. Also, by the way, every single person on the planet is improvising at any given second. So, we're all improvising, we're all good at it. But uh, it just turns out some of us <laughs> shouldn't be doing it on camera. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sam, I, I won't. Want to do you, you, uh, talk about this redirecting? But I want to talk about one very specific scene, which is the, uh, Blake's death, which I, I pulled that as well. Now, it's I just think it's um, his performance and what you got, and also George's performance doing. Uh, mm. Can you talk a little bit of how that evolved? Um, well, actually, it, I didn't because of what I talked about before. I didn't have to direct the boys, the two boys, very much on the day at all, because we've been working so long, except in that one scene. And what I did with any of the interior scenes, like dugouts and rooms, tunnels, what have you, we, we, we rehearsed them on stage at Shepparton and I built the walls out of piles of cardboard boxes so that I could move the walls easily to get the right shape for the scene. And then I would run it with the actors and I'd bring Roger Deakins in and we'd look at it and then we'd construct the set based on what we'd done. So. And this was one scene where I did it just with me and the two boys and my script supervisor in a room at Shepparton. And they absolutely nailed it. And this was months before. Uh, and it was, I found it really moving. And I said, okay, I don't want you to do that again until we're ready to shoot it. So I want you to learn the physical shape of the scene, when you pick him up, what you say when, you know, your, your physical position when he's lying on your lap, all of those things, I want you to go through it, just the two of you. In, in, in a, do it in your hotel room, whatever. Don't, I, don't, I don't want to be involved. I need to be involved in it. And then I want you to hold it until I think the camera's ready to capture, capture it. And unlike a normal process where you just, you know, you could do what Tyker's talking about. Hey, just give me something different. Do this, do that, you know. We can shift the ground the whole time. I, they had to do it in a single long take. It was eight minutes and it had to be coherent, and any little thing from camera could derail the scene. So we could have a beautiful take of, of Dean dying in, 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 Blake dying in Schofield's arms, but then if the camera was in the wrong position for when Schofield takes the rings off his dead hand, the, the, the take was done, and we had to start again. I mean, there was no way to, for me to, to, to cut into it at all, obviously. <clears throat> so. I, I, so for me, the job in that case was holding him back until I thought we were ready to capture exactly what he had to, to, to do. 
And then I also trusted one other thing, which was particular to this, this movie, which never normally, which is that he had a rig in his backpack so that when he, obviously stabbed by the German pilot, when he opened his tunic, the blood just started pouring out. And I said, told them not to fire the rig until I thought he was ready to react to the blood. Because I had a feeling that the feeling of just pumping blood out of his own stomach would be so overwhelming to him that he would, he would react differently. And, and that is what happened. He, that one of, I think the, the things I, the, my favorite little <laughs> moments in the movie is the look on his face when he sees the blood coming out of his own stomach. And it is genuine shock. I mean, it took us a long time to do this rig and all this sort of stuff, but it, it just pumps and pumps and pumps and pumps and keeps going. And there's something about bleeding and bleeding and bleeding that, that actually had an emotional impact. So in that case, it was, a, it, it, it was unlike any scene I've shot. It wasn't like a stage um, scene because uh, the camera was moving the whole time, but also because that rig would not have worked on stage. Um, and it wasn't like a normal movie set uh, because we weren't, we weren't fragmenting the scene into its component parts. It was just one thing. And, and so I was encouraging him to sort of live it, really, uh, as much as anything else. And the only things I remember saying on the day to George were, when he says, am I dying? I think it's the, it's the one question you absolutely don't want to have to answer. But you will tell him the truth. But it's not easy. So take your time until you're ready to say, yes, yes, I think you are. That, to me, is the act of a friend. You know, there's a line about doctors, you know, what constitutes a good doctor is, is, is they tell you the truth and they stay with you to the end. And I always think about that, about friends, you know. Um, he, he, the act of a friend is to tell you that, yes, you are dying. So you, you use this last minute or two of your life to say what you need to say, and I will be here for you. And, and, and so I remember going in and saying that and a couple of other small things, otherwise directed the camera. But most of the time, for me, the boys were not the issue. The issue was the day players. I was about to so say to have the extras. Well, to have my day players, effectively, two days, sometimes three, Colin Firth, Benedict Cumberbatch, Andrew Scott, Richard Madden, Mark Strong. They were my day players, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> but, you know, the weird thing was, and they all were doing it for the right reason. They, they, they all said, look, we want to be part of this. You know, I promised them they wouldn't have to publicize the movie, which that would, their eyes lit up at that point. You mean I just have to be an actor, you know? Um, and, and just read the script and want to be part of this. And if you don't, that's fine. But if you do, come, you know, I'll rehearse with you beforehand. But the, the, the issue for, for me there was, was we had to intersect with these lives that on paper were much bigger than the lives of the boys that we were following. These were, these were generals or colonels or lieutenants who had responsibilities way beyond what these two lads were doing. And I didn't want them to feel like, you know, stars popping up and doing their bit and then we move on. I, I wanted to feel like their lives began and ended outside of the frame of the camera. And we were intersecting with lives that were, um, that were ju we just saw a fragment. It was like a little, little glimpse through the crack of a door of, of, of a life. And then we were through and past them. And each one had significance. But I also wanted them to not be too broad because I didn't want them, I, for me, the movie was not about the generals were assholes and, and you know, they, they were all sending these men to their deaths. Didn't want them to be, you know, um, rhetorical, you know. I didn't want them to be assholes. I wanted them to be people struggling in the fog of war to make sense of what the fuck was going on. In a war that, you know, this perfect storm of history where 
You could kill a man at a thousand yards with a machine gun, but you couldn't communicate with a man 20 yards away because they hadn't invented the communication that would do that. And that the, this, this puts you in this present tense world in which you never know what's around the next corner. One person says one thing, another person says another, and neither is the case, you know? And I, I, I had to give this feeling that these people were just struggling in their rooms or their, wherever you met them with their own series of issues. And I had to calm them down because the energy, I always think of directing actors sometimes like, a, like one of those heat goggle things. Um, you know, the, the, you're, the, the, you, you, detect, you can see the body and you can see where the heat is. And, and I feel like sometimes on stage, the heat is in the wrong place. The heat's here. And the heat needs to be here. You need to be in your body, in your gut. You need to know where you are, who you are, what you need to do. And the heat drops in the body to the point where you feel them centered. And, and the problem with people coming in for short periods of time is the heat comes up here like this. Well, I'm acting. I'm acting. This is my bit. This is my bit. This is my bit. And you have to calm down. So I remember Benedict, you know, it's very easy to misinterpret a speech like he has a speech. He says, I've heard it all before. I'm not going to wait until fog. I'm not going to wait until dark. I'm not going to call my men back and you know, send them out, only to send them out again tomorrow. And that came out to me as rhetoric in the first instance. I've heard it all before, that sort of thing. And I said, no, 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 no. it's not rhetoric. It's the truth. I've heard it all before. Okay, fine. So you just want, and it, I could, it just had to pull the energy down from here to here. And that's what I was doing all the time with those guys. I was just, just rooting them, rooting them. Like Andrew Scott, you've been there for months. You fucking hate this place. You know, you're sick. You've had the flu. This has happened just before. This, this is about to happen. You know, you drag two men back. When you say, I dragged two of them back here two days ago, you know, we shouldn't have, I shouldn't have bothered. You fucking carried those fucking corpses on your back down into this hole and they were already dead. Tell them that in that one line, you know. So it's about lived experience and just have to compress, compress. Take what you remember, take everything you've done and push it down into this very tight space in which you're trying to communicate in a very limited time everything you've lived through. And that's what we're doing with the boys, but the boys had much longer to express those things so they could come out in little moments here and there. But, but with the others, they needed to sit on this big, well of emotion and experience, lived experience. So I had a lot of description, a lot of, and walked them around the set, showed them no man's land, and described things that they would have lived through, talked to them about it, rehearse a little bit, and then say nothing on the day, as much as I could, and except occasionally step in and say less, less, or more. And you know, you said that to Quentin, but is that result-oriented? And I don't think it is in a weird way. Sometimes you just need to say 25% less, or quicker or in a way it's the clearest thing you don't want to be standing on set going talking about their deeper motivations when you're in the middle of a friggin scene and you've got you know two hours to go and the lights going you, you, they should know that already and and you know you do want to be talking just very very simple terms um and so for me that that was the big job of this movie but you know normally shooting is a bit more experimental you know you can try stuff out and you don't have to make the decisions but on this one i had to make the decisions as we were doing it, and so it was much more like theatre in that regard, because I had to say that that's it. Now hold that, but later in the scene you need to do that that you did two takes ago, and you need to. So you, there was a bit of this, okay? Because I couldn't do that that lovely thing that you have, you know, and I couldn't do what Bong did, which is to <laughs> splice up and you know I did it once though. I did do it once uh, where I put two takes together, 
with a split screen. Um, and uh, but but yeah, it, it was it was unlike any other movie in that respect. Last question for all of you. Although I, I wish I could stand and spend many days with you because there's so much to hear and share. But the last question for us. There you go. What what did you learn? Don't worry about it. You'll have to stop. I finished them off. I think. What did you? Uh, what did you? This learn? is where all the good stuff comes out. <laughs> the actual information. What did you learn on this movie? What did you learn on this movie that if you now were to talk to uh, another director, you give this piece of advice? This I learned on this movie about directing that I would say if I'm talking to another director, a new director, here's a piece of advice. Or Sam, what piece of advice might you give a... Well, I learned a huge amount on this movie because there was a bunch of stuff I'd never done before. So I, I learned what it feels like to direct your own work, which you know, these guys know. And I didn't know that. And it's vulnerable. You know, you, you don't, you can't turn around and blow the wall because it's your fault, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and on the day you have to, you know, if someone says this line's not working, that means you have to rewrite it. And, and that, that I, I, I thought was, I learned a lot about what it is to be a writer in a movie and how vulnerable it makes you. I learned a lot about, um, uh, that there is no end to the language of the camera. That was, to me, was the big revelation, you know, is that how quickly we get set into this, uh, you know, master shot, two shot, over the shoulder, over the shoulder, close up, bing, bang, bong, quick, you know, fa fancy shot every three, six, you know, whatever it is, that the patterns that you find, you, there are endless, endless, limitless ways to shoot a scene, limitless. The camera is its own language, and if you push yourself and make rules for yourself whereby you, which you can't break, which I did on this one, it forces you to find new ways to express things with a camera. And that for me was a huge revelation when I think you, you, you do become very, I at least I speak for myself, set in one's ways. Um, so that for me was the big, big learning experience. Great, thank you. I think for me, uh, probably something I learn or relearn on every film is uh, to uh, enjoy the, the danger of whatever it is I'm doing this time around, or how nervous I might be about the project, if anyone's going to see it, if it's even going to be good. Um, because I think with every film I've done, I've always felt like if, it's, if it feels like, a, not to be stupid, but if it feels like a bad idea or a dangerous idea or something that, that I, won't, I won't ever come back from, uh, then it's probably worth doing it. Um, it's like that great. There's a great interview with David Bowie about creativity, and uh, you know, they're like, what, "What's creativity for you?" And he says, "Well, it's like when you're walking out in, in the ocean. You're walking out, and you're walking out, and you just start losing your footing, and you can just barely touch the bottom, and the water's up to here. And you're not. You start getting worried about where the bottom of the ocean is, and if and if you can stand up again." He says, "When I when when I feel like that creatively, he goes, then I know I'm doing good work." And, I, and, and I always try to remind myself to feel like that and to enjoy feeling like that. that I, and if I finish a scene, I feel like I covered it too easily. If it feels like it, it came too easily, then I get very worried. And, uh, and I, try and throw, I try and make it a bit more chaotic. I try and put obstacles in the way or, 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 or just sort of shake it up and, and try and find ways of making it more interesting. And, and uh, yeah, and just keep like, yeah, I guess just not not given to to just you know it great, being easy. Great metaphor, by the way, the water metaphor that you just said. For you, 
Uh, I'm not really sure how much uh, um, it would have to do with this movie particularly. Mm -hmm. um, it's just basically I had a really good team. So I and a wonderful group of actors. And I had a really good team, and and everything that we were doing was. Fun. I mean, it was fun to turn Los Angeles back into 1969. It was fun to be in that world. Believe me, when I did Django Unchained, it was not fun being in the antebellum South slavery world every day. Uh, uh, that was a it was a fucking drag. All right, um, <laughs> but this was this was a lot of fun, and so. Um, yeah, so I'm not sure how much that has to do with this movie and or how much it has to do with after doing a few movies, I've gotten easier at it. I think, the, I, I think um, so it's not really answering your question, but I think, um, I think I have changed a little bit between this movie and the last movie, Hateful Eight, because I think there was a situation where I think before I was a little bit more precious about each scene and its time, and and you, you, you don't split. I mean, there's always situations where you have to split up a scene and finish it in another day, but but that really, really shouldn't happen that way unless there's something else. <coughs> so you're building up to the right time to shoot a sequence, and then once you're doing it, you're doing it. And I was really kind of precious about stuff like that, and and then all of this, and and then in the case of the Hateful Eight, one of the things that was the most important was capturing the weather. That was one of the most important things that we were doing is capturing that weather. So it's, you know, and we would never really know what the weather was going to truly, truly be until pretty much a day before. So if the sun was up, then we're inside the wagon shooting. And if the sun was doing something else, we were in the, uh, 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 the haberdashery, uh, but if it actually, if it's all gray, it's this, but if it actually, we actually got the snow, that we were looking for, then we'd be up on this one mountain, all right, to do this one sequence. And you'd have a situation where like the snow is falling in just the right way you want to do it, and it's like uh, Sam Jackson trying to talk himself onto the coach. And so you're shooting Sam and all that wonderful snow, and that's great, but then we might not shoot the other, other side of that for like three weeks or three and a half weeks when we had that kind of snow again. Now, I wasn't used to working that way. And Bob Richardson even kind of said to me, wow, Quentin, I'm really proud of you. You know, you're really kind of, you're outside of your comfort zone. You're like, oh, well, it's what we're doing. I mean, this is it, it's literally what we're doing. We're all up here on this mountain in Colorado to, to, to capture this weather and this real snow in this certain kind of way. And, um, and I think that carried over on this movie where it was like there were certain things that were important and there were certain shots that we wanted to try to get that were important and there was and when it came to like getting the freeway or getting Hollywood Boulevard or getting anything like that there was a finite amount of time that we had to do it and so I, I did get out of my I have gotten out of my own comfort zone about as far as like the almost theatrical integrity of the dramatic scene that we're doing, and more it's a, no, it's a, it's a movie, and, it, and you, you decide that some things are important, or more important than others, then you have to readjust it to shoot, uh, to capture on film what's the most important to you. And Mong, for you, what, what did oh, you learn uh, that you would say uh, from this uh, movie, what did you learn about yourself as a director? Uh, so rather than something lofty that I learned, um, I would like to talk about something more practical since you guys are all directors. 그, 
So for me, Parasite was a unique setup. Uh, the DP and I, we always loved shooting on locations. We would um, go location scouting, take a bunch of photos. But with Parasite, 90% of the story happened um, in those two sets. And particularly in the Rich House, 60% of the narrative happens there. So for me, it was sort of the first time shooting an interior movie. So I never feel comfortable until I completely dissect all the spaces and swallow them whole and have a full mastery of the space. Otherwise, I feel anxious. So with Parasite, I was very worried on how I was going to cook these spaces together. And that's why as soon as I finished the script, I had no choice but to work very closely with the production designer. Um, I usually love to go to the space myself and take a bunch of photos, but with this, I couldn't do it. Um, both sets were completed almost right before kickoff. So I asked the visual effects team to create a virtual model of the set um, that reflects the exact design that the production designer was working on. So through my computer and through this virtual model, I was able to roam around the space, choose various lenses, and simulate different angles. And another challenge was it wasn't um, it was necessary for the audience to also have full mastery and of three-dimensional geography of the space. Actually, first half of the movie is uh, the process of infiltration, the family, one by one. So the first half seems like it's progressing the narrative and it's introducing the characters to the audience, but actually at the same time, it's educating the audience on the full geography of the rich house. So the audience had to be fully educated on the space for the second half of the film to just rage in terms of telling the narrative and all the events that explode later on. So on the surface, you know, the film features all these fun dialogue, it shows the process of infiltration, introduces the fun quirks of each individual character, but subconsciously the, edu the audience is being introduced and educated on this space, and that's something that I paid a lot of attention to during prep. So now I think I can give at least a 25-minute lecture on how, to, how the approach to take when you're shooting an interior film inside a very meticulous and complicated space. <laughs> Well, in terms of educating, and in terms of learning, and in terms of sharing, you are all masters of a form that we all love, and we thank you for your creative genius and for your time here. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to part three of this exclusive discussion. You can watch the full video of the Theatrical Feature Film Symposium on our website at dga.org slash events. Past episodes of The Director's Cut are available wherever you listen to podcasts, and be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.